many of you have read books uh, or seen movies that include uh, really intense courtroom scenes? Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, A Time to Kill, A Few Good Men, for example. Or perhaps you grew up watching Matlock or remember scenes from other shows like when Leo McGarry of the West Wing testifies before Congress. You can picture the courtroom, the lawyer, the defendant, the witnesses. But even more, you become uh, so drawn into these moments that you become part of the scene. Uh, You feel like you're in the courtroom or or watching from the balcony. Uh, You're engaged and you're, you're listening. You're waiting on the edge of your seat. What's going to happen? What will he say If that's true, what does this all mean for me, for us, for society? We enter Paul's defense in Acts 26 like this. Four times Paul has defended himself before the Jews, before the council, before Felix, before Festus. And his innocence and the integrity of his gospel ministry is undeniable. But now Paul stands before the king. And with great pomp, Agrippa enters the audience hall with all the military tribunes and the prominent men of society. They do it up fancy with regal robes and and pageantry. But we're on the edge of our seats to hear the man in chains. What's going to happen? What will Paul say? And if he's right... What will it mean for me, for us, for others? So we begin in verse 1, where King Agrippa gives Paul the floor. And so Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Agrippa knows Jewish customs. Agrippa knows the religious controversies. Of the Jews. He he even knows their scriptures, we learn later in verse 27. Well, that makes it easier for Paul to defend his ministry. And so throughout his defense, Paul appeals to his Jewish background as well as the Jewish scriptures. So in verse 4, Paul begins with his Jewish background. He was a Pharisee. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm being accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? 
What's his logic so far? Well, if God is all-powerful, it's not hard to accept that he raises the dead. And within that conviction, at least some Jews, the Pharisees, believed that God would raise many from the dead on the last day. And Paul belonged to that group. Yeah, he'll go further and say that God already raised Jesus from the dead, but he doesn't get there until verse 23. Here, he simply shows that whatever he will say about Jesus' resurrection aligns with the resurrection hope of his Jewish compadres. Which is why it's so baffling that he's on trial. He shares their resurrection hope. The rub is that Jesus is the concrete realization of their resurrection hope. And they want nothing to do with Jesus. But neither did Paul at one point. That's where he goes next. Paul once opposed Jesus, just like they do. Verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. What's the significance of Paul's past here within his defense? Well, it helps to establish the credibility of his gospel testimony. The gospel he now preaches doesn't align with his original set of assumptions about Jesus. He wasn't predisposed, in other words, to receive Christianity as true. He hated these people who said, Jesus is alive, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is everything, follow Jesus. He hated them, he despised them. That is, until he was forced to see Christianity's truthfulness with a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And that's next, Paul encounters the risen Jesus. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. If you consider the brightness of the sun at high noon, 
the light that Paul sees outshines that sun. And we know it's a manifestation of the glory of the exalted Christ. Jesus himself says, I appeared to you. You have seen me. At this moment, everything changes for Paul. The objective glory of the risen Jesus compels him. Even stronger, it forces him to live for Christ. That's the idea behind the goads here. right? The sharp, pointed sticks that the, that the oxen would kick and stubbornness if they weren't moving. And when their feet would hit those goads, they had to keep moving, right? Paul, Paul is... Jesus is using, you know, why are you kicking against the goads, right? Paul has no other choice but to bow before Jesus' majesty and obey. Paul once tried to destroy the church, but Jesus confronts him, he conforms him, and then he commissions him to build the church. I'm sending you to open their eyes. And so Paul obeys Jesus in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but first declared, declared to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he'd proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. We'll return to these words shortly. I only want to pause And say, never underestimate the power of the risen Jesus. If there's anybody that we would have labeled as least likely to become a Christian, it was Paul. And yet, the risen Jesus transforms this hardened man into a passionate witness for the gospel. Paul once opposed Jesus, but now he stands before a king, boldly testifying that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes... That Jesus is the only Savior for Gentiles. And he's even going to call Agrippa himself out. Asking, inviting him to believe upon Jesus. As well as all of those in the courtroom. Paul, as I said, doesn't even hesitate to confront the king himself. About where he stands with Jesus. Look lastly at Paul's final appeal for everyone to believe in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. The word he uses here is the same word we get maniac from. Festus thinks Paul's a maniac. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. 
For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them And when they were withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Paul turns the tables once again, doesn't he? You see, Agrippa summoned Paul for questioning. But the event ends with Paul questioning Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And more than that, Paul makes it so that the entire assembly must consider their state before King Jesus. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Agrippa may be king of his region, but Agrippa must come to terms with the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And so do you and I. Luke has brought you and me into the courtroom with him and put us on the edge of our seat so that we're forced with the same question. Do you believe the prophets? Are you compelled to believe in the risen Jesus? Or are you kicking against the goads, resisting Jesus' messenger, questioning Jesus' lordship? The whole point of Paul's defense isn't just to clear himself, as we've seen again and again. Agrippa certainly recognizes Paul's innocence. But Paul is there to persuade the entire assembly. Think about this. This is a man in chains, and he's there to persuade the entire assembly of the prominent men of the city And King Agrippa and Festus, with all their accolades, and the military tribunes, he's there to persuade all of them to become Christians, to become followers of Jesus. He's there to convince them of the truth and the glory of the gospel message he preaches. Right? This is not Paul in there saying, well, from my perspective... Well, Agrippa, Christianity, it works for me. It's not not even him saying, well, it'd be nice if they become Christians. No, he is there to persuade and to reason and to fight and to convince that Christianity is true. And his gospel message is right. And there is no other message of hope. I don't mean fight with fists, of course. Fight, argumentation. Do you believe that? If you do believe that Christianity is true, how private are you keeping it? If it is universal truth for all people that they must bow before the King of Kings... How quiet are you about it? 
The culture is going to tell us to stuff it and to keep it private. Just you and Jesus. You can do your thing with God by yourself. But if Christianity is true, we must speak the truth in public. We must bring it out in public. It must influence what we do and who we are and how we act and what we say. So if you believe that Christianity is true and that the gospel is true, are you seeking to persuade others to believe it? I want us to consider, spend the rest of our time, considering a few reasons why we ought to persuade others to believe the gospel. I'm just going to pull them from various places in the passage. Why should we persuade others to believe the gospel? Number one, the gospel was promised by God in Scripture. Verse 6, Paul mentions the promise of resurrection hope made by God to the fathers. Verse 22, he preaches nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What's that? That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. So interestingly enough, nearly the same words are found on the lips of the risen Jesus in Luke 24. And he's just bringing up the point that the scriptures promised that Christ would die, that Christ would rise. And as a result of that resurrection, the gospel would advance to all nations. So God promised these events in Scripture. And sure enough, Paul announces that these very events did in fact happen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Even now, the risen Jesus is empowering the church to proclaim the gospel to the nations. God has kept His promises, in other words. And He's keeping His promises. And that's why Paul asks, do you believe the prophets? Point being, if you accept the prophets, it's not too difficult to see their perfect fulfillment in the risen Jesus. Jesus is the Lord who pours out His Spirit as Joel promised. He's the greater David who reigns forever like Psalm 16 anticipated. He's the Lord of Psalm 110 beneath whose feet all enemies will be crushed. He's the superior prophet uh, to Moses. He's, he's Isaiah's promised servant uh, who suffers in the place of others. He wins the holy and sure blessings of David again and again. Just as just the book of Acts. They're, 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 they're proving that God has kept His promises. He's faithful. That He's consistent. He's moving all of history toward the end in Christ. The king has arrived. The king has won. He reigns. He's coming again. And therefore, we persuade. Right? If all of these promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled, then all of history is barreling toward the Christ, Christ coming once again. And we know that and are assured of that because he died and rose again. Then between this resurrection and his second coming, what are we doing? We're persuading others. This is happening. God is faithful to his promises, right? Number two, the gospel is historically true. Paul first calls on eyewitnesses to come verify his way of life. He, he does this in verse 5. They've all known for a long time if they're willing to testify. I'll give you their name and number. Go look them up, have them here tomorrow. They'll tell you the way I was, right? 
He was no Christian. He wasn't convinced about Jesus' resurrection. He thought it was a bunch of baloney to the point of forcing other Christians to recant and to blaspheme. Go ask these people, he's saying. He's telling the truth about what he was. And you know what? He's telling the truth about who changed him and how. Jesus' appearance wasn't some private, subjective experience. It was midday. Other men were journeying with him. They all fell to the ground. They could verify. He also tells Festus, I'm not crazy. I'm speaking true and rational words. Christianity is not just some blind leap of faith. And that's your category, what faith is, some blind leap. You need to get rid of it. It is rational and true. He tells Agrippa, this hasn't been done in a corner. Right? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the results of those events are historically true and verifiable. And in other words, Paul's message isn't a mere religious squabble. Well, I believe this. Well, I believe this. Great. We pat each other on the back and go home. That's not what Paul's message is. Nor is he simply promoting a mythical story from which to glean timeless truths to live by. Jesus didn't just rise in my heart. No. Paul grounds his message in eyewitness testimony and the objective historical reality of the risen Jesus appearing to him. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical claim that everyone must face to their own salvation or their everlasting shame. Paul couldn't ignore Jesus and neither can you. He is absolute reality. Therefore, we aim to persuade others because it's true. Number three, the gospel is really good news. We persuade others because the gospel is really good news. Notice how Jesus and Paul talk about it. It turns people from darkness to light. Verse 18, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. He's borrowing imagery from Isaiah. What's darkness in Isaiah? It's moral depravity. It's people sitting in their depravity without God's special revelation illuminating the mind. They call evil good and good evil. John says, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. That's everybody apart from Jesus. But in Jesus we find light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. God who said light, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel announces light for those in darkness. It gives us understanding and it it imparts a knowledge of God and His will and how that will is being carried out in Christ. It even transforms us into light so that other people can see. Ephesians 5.8 At one time you were darkness and now you are light in the Lord. The gospel also rescues us from Satan's power. Verse 18 So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. I want you to just turn with me over to 2 Corinthians. Just for a second. Some of you have been going through it in discipleship hour. So if I get something wrong, ask Trey. But look at this in, uh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded their minds, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, how do they come to see? How do they come to this deliverance, right? Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your enemies for Jesus' sake. So there's the proclamation of the gospel. And then verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How are people, according to this passage, turned away from this blinding, this blinding work that Satan is doing? Through the gospel proclamation. The lights go on through the Holy Spirit's work and they are rescued, right? Without Jesus... We are Satan's subjects. He tempts us. He accuses us before God. Colossians speaks of a certificate that spells out the penalty we deserve for breaking God's law and demonic forces use the certificate to blackmail us. To keep us doing their bidding. He also oppresses us with the fear of death, Hebrews 2 talks about, so that in fear we follow him instead of Jesus. You know what the gospel announces? The gospel announces that Jesus overcomes every temptation for our sake. The gospel announces that Jesus died for our sins to cancel that certificate of debt. He jerked it from the enemy's hands and nailed it to the cross. He stripped the demonic powers of their accusing might. And then he topped it off by parading them around as a bunch of defeated foes. Colossians 2, go read it. Hebrews 2, the gospel announces that God's Son partook of flesh and blood so that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So you see this picture of people who are being oppressed and put in fear And the gospel coming in and through that announcement of what Christ has done to overcome Satan, they're set free. 
the rescued from Satan's power. The gospel also announces the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Again, verse 18. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. God is holy. We've offended Him by our wayward desires and attitudes towards His law. We stand guilty before God. The consequence is God's punishment, eternal death. And when God forgives somebody, He does more than just pardon us. Pardoning means He frees us from punishment. How can we be free from punishment? Well, because He put His punishment on Christ in our place. But forgiveness also goes further. It extends to the removal of sin, which is the cleansing away, the washing away of all that makes us guilty before God. And that's why he goes on to say we find a place, an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's not talking about progressive sanctification our gradual growth in Christ-likeness. This is positional sanctification. Upon the moment we trust in Christ, He sets us apart as holy to God. Okay, The idea stems from the Old Testament. God Himself is holy, and if He wants to use someone or something, right? you've got these like shovels, and they have to be holy to be used in the temple and whatnot, or the priests... Right? If they, if they had to be, if he was to use something or someone, they, they or it had to be set apart as holy, as exclusively for God. And that often involved, you know, the blood of a bull and a couple of rams being spilt and sprinkled on the altar and on the instruments and applied to the priests. Well, likewise, when the blood of Christ is applied to the believer, the moment he believes, God sets you apart as holy. God sets you apart as holy for himself. Useful in His service. The Gospel further announces the hope of resurrection in Christ. Notice verse 23. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead He would proclaim light. So Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. Usually when you know, Paul would then make a point about how Jesus is the firstborn or the first fruits. He's our forerunner and, 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 and our assurance that God will also raise us from the dead. But here, the risen Jesus actively proclaims light to Israel and the nations. And we go like, where? I don't see him anywhere. It's because he's doing it through the church. Right? He's seated at the right hand of God, pours out the Holy Spirit, and he's doing it right now through the church. Which means we have assurance And even the church itself is evidence that history is doing what I said a minute, barreling towards God's final plan in Christ. Okay? Which involves raising us from the dead to glory. So, light, rescue, forgiveness, resurrection. The gospel is really good news, beloved. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to enjoy. We have so much to celebrate today as we come to the Lord's Supper. We have so much to encourage one another with on a daily basis. But even more, 
We have so much good news to announce to a world that is sitting in darkness, that is still enslaved to Satan's power. We have the truth that will lead them out of the devil's snares and will open their minds to see light. We persuade others because light, rescue, forgiveness, and resurrection are good news. Uh, Number four, the gospel creates a new obedience. Consider what Paul does by describing the way he he used to live next to the way he lives now. He used to be an unjust, troublemaking murderer. In raging fury, he persecuted the church. But what happens once Jesus converts Paul? Well, he becomes a man controlled by the Holy Spirit. He becomes a man who, insofar as it depends on him, lives peaceably with all. Agrippa can't help but see his innocence. But even more, notice verse 20, Paul teaches everyone to repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. This is the church. What is repentance? Well, it's certainly more than feeling bad about your your sin. Some have said it's changing your mind, agreeing with God. Well, it's at least that much, but it's not, that's still not quite enough. Repentance affects the will and your innermost motives. The concept is closer to the Old, the Old Testament idea of turning, uh, turning to the Lord Himself, which Paul actually mentions here. Listen, repentance is incomplete if all we're doing is avoiding sin. Repentance is incomplete if all we're doing is avoiding sin. Christianity isn't mainly about avoiding bad stuff. It's about treasuring Jesus and adoring Jesus. So if you're just avoiding bad stuff and you're still not treasuring Jesus, you're not living the Christian life. When that relationship with Jesus happens, a new obedience occurs. Turning to the Lord produces certain deeds that honor Him. Right? The Gospel creates new desires in us to follow the Lord. The Gospel creates a love for His Word, an affection for Christ's glory, a, a desire to be with His people. We persuade others to believe the gospel because it's, the only, it's only through the gospel that this new obedience will actually flow. True and lasting transformation can only happen through the gospel. So we persuade others. And then five, the gospel is for all peoples. Why do we persuade others? Because Jesus bought himself a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's for all peoples. In verses 17 to 18, Jesus commissions Paul to Israel and the Gentiles to open their eyes. In verse 20, notice how Paul announces the gospel in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and then out to the Gentiles. 
In verse 22, he says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, meaning the gospel is for people like kings and dignitaries, great. And the gospel is also for the people who are very insignificant in society's eyes. Small. In verse 23, Jesus' mission goes on, goes to the Gentiles. And that's happening right now. In verse 29, Paul invites the whole assembly to become Christians, no matter who they are, right? And then let's not also forget Paul himself. Jesus took an insolent opponent, a hardened enemy of the gospel, a self-righteous Pharisee, and he transformed him into an emissary for the gospel. So this whole account screams again and again that God's grace in the gospel is for all peoples. And knowing that should affect our movement as a church. Our movement isn't come and see, come and see. Our movement is go and tell. Go and tell. No matter the background, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the economic status, no matter the region, no matter the darkness that people are right now in, Paul offered the gospel to all peoples and he sought to persuade them. Why? Because that's what the risen Jesus himself is doing. Listen to it again. By being the first to rise from the dead, he, that is Jesus, would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles, you are an extension of the risen Jesus reaching the Gentiles. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. The gospel message that we possess brings light to darkness. It rescues people from Satan's tyranny. When people believe it, they can know the forgiveness of their sins. Isn't it amazing that God has entrusted us with this message? That we have the very message that will open people's eyes. That frees people from Satan's oppression. We are but empty jars of clay and yet Jesus gives us this treasure in the gospel to share with others. So let's be faithful to do so as we view our lives and as, as an extension of Jesus' mission. Persuade others. Convince them of Christianity's truthfulness. If you have doubts yourself, wrestle through them with the word and come to the truth so that you're all the more confident to help others see what you have seen in the glory of Jesus. The gospel is promised, it's true, it's good, it creates, and it's for all. Let's eat together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.